The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help and blessing upon your word that you would illumine the text and make it come alive to us, even though it is living and active, but your spirit must attend of this word and make it profitable to our hearts, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see, a heart to understand. Would you grant this to us for the sake of Christ and for the sake of us, your people, for our good and edification that we would look more and more like Christ. We pray uh, for our body as a local congregation here in Appal. We do ask for your Spirit's help and your Spirit's outpouring upon us uh, that we would, Father, that we'd be unified, that uh, we would uh, be unified not in we have to have our own way at all times, but uh, even in being uh, tolerant and, and being um, open to reason and full of mercy. We pray that we would be those kind of people, uh, that wisdom that's from above, as James 3 says. Uh, we ask that you would grant this to us uh, because we are not able to uh, grant this to ourselves. We are not able to produce this in ourselves. Uh, we are not even able to desire this apart from uh, the work of your Spirit. And so, Father, be merciful and pour out your Spirit in your Son for your Son's sake and so that Christ would be honored and glorified and that uh, your people would be built up in the most holy faith. We're so grateful that you have given to us this faith that we believe and that we can confess together as one body. And Father, it is our privilege to stand up and defend this faith, and we should even do it with our own lives. And if it uh, was not for your grace, uh, we would not do it. And so, Father, we do ask for that grace, that we would see that matters of faith is important, that really the most important things there are, and that we would be those who are found faithful. And that, as Christ says, that uh, we are not those that, um, that we're ashamed to confess our faith before men, that Christ be ashamed to confess us before you. And so we uh, want to be those who hold the faith dear, love the faith, and are those who, because we believe, we speak, and we want to speak these things. And help us to, to share these things with the unbelieving world, to invite the unbelieving world to come and and hear these things so that they may be saved and that uh, their soul may be uh, eternally saved from destruction for the glory of Christ and His work alone. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last uh, sermon on Esther, which I don't remember when that was. Was it last week? Uh, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. I knew something... I know I didn't preach Esther last week, but anyway, that's beside the point. The last sermon in Esther, uh, we consider poetic justice. And poetic justice is something where the person who's being punished gets punished with the affliction with which he afflicted others. And that's a beautiful thing. But poetic justice doesn't resolve all the issues, as beautiful as it is. Because you will hear from families who lost a loved one to a senseless murder. While they are happy that justice is served, they also say that 
that justice could not bring their loved one back. While justice made the wrong right, the wrong that they done was not taken away. And so there needs to not only be this poetic justice, there also needs to be this poetic reversal, as I'm calling it today. And this is actually what God promises in the Gospel. Not only that all wrongs would be made right, but also that the curse, as far as it is found, will, that's what I preached last week, uh, will also be uh, removed. Uh, it will, uh, th- this, this horrible world that we live in uh, is going to come to an end and we will be there with God in heaven. And he promises this in uh, that wonderful passage we read this morning in our public scripture reading, which is Revelation 21 about the new heavens and the new earth. All, all the, the, the grief and and the hardships are going to come to an end, and instead there's going to be joy and everlasting peace. And this is actually how the book of Esther starts to come to an end as we come to the end of Esther. These things get reversed. We see this not only a reversal, but a poetic reversal. And in our passage today, we're going to see three of them. Three poetic reversals that picture the hope of the gospel. The first is what I call possession. We see in verse 1, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And so, poetic justice has been done. Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had for Mordecai. But now his house goes to Esther, who then in turn gives it to Mordecai. And notice what it says about Haman here. He's called the enemy of the Jews. In Scripture's identity of him here at this juncture is not coincidental or accidental or superfluous. Bringing up a point, at this juncture you need to be reminded that Haman was the enemy of the Jews. And who owns his household now? Ah, the very people he tried to destroy. And so now Esther, now God's people, now the seed, owns the enemy of the house. And we actually see Christ allude to this in the Gospels. When Christ says that he has bound the strong man and is now plundering his house. He's referring to Satan. Christ because of his work, takes over Satan's house in that the very people that were held bond in bondage to do his will now become his. Christ, the seed, is the one who ends up owning the house. The, the, those who used to belong to Satan's kingdom of darkness, his children who are enslaved to do his will, he now takes as his own and brings to his own house the church, the household of God. And we also see that the authority that the enemy had been given to Mordecai, or the the authority that the enemy had has been given to Mordecai. Look at verse 2. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Remember, this signet ring really is the king's seal. So whatever gets stamped, whatever document gets stamped with this ring, becomes this authoritative document. 
that's how people know this is what the king has said, and therefore this is what must be done. So it really represents the king's authority. And so this authority that once belonged to Haman to destroy the Jews now belongs to Mordecai. The authority and power that once belonged to his enemy, specifically to destroy him, now belongs to him. And this is what we see with Christ. You see, the first Adam lost his dominion when he chose to obey the devil. And so he became subject to Satan. And this is why you see statements in Scripture such as, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says that Satan is the god of this world. Or what Jesus said in John 12, that Satan is the prince of this world. You say, well, how can that be? I mean, God made the world God's sovereign. Yes, but he gave that dominion to Adam. It doesn't mean that God ceased to be sovereign, but Adam is, uh, was to rule over God's creation have dominion. Well, when he sinned by bowing to the devil and obeying his word, his word, he handed that over essentially to the devil. And now the devil has this power over people, power to blind them. Again, referring to the scripture passages, uh, referring to this uh, devil's power. How did he lose that power over Christ's chosen people? Well, Christ came and he suffered as an Adam, including being in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. And then after facing that temptation uh, in the wilderness, as I said last week, you start to see this reversal happen where we're now by the Spirit, Satan's minions, these demons are being cast out, and you start to see this reversal happen. It's because Christ is the last Adam. He had to come and he had to conquer. He had to do the things that the first Adam was supposed to do, living a perfect life of tested obedience, not giving in to the devil, showing his allegiance to God, and then he goes to the cross. And he faces the wrath of God and that awful curse. And in that, that rests that power out of Satan's hand. Not to say that Satan still doesn't roar like a lion. Not to say that Satan still isn't over the sphere of, the e of, of evil. That's what's meant by this world. The sphere of evil. But for God's people, that authority over them has been taken away because Christ is the one who rescued them by His own work on their behalf. And so we see the evil one losing his power, and this is represented even here with the seed uh, losing his power and it being given to, or the, the seed of the serpent losing his power and it being given to the seed of the woman. And this brings us really to uh, the second poetic reversal that pictures the hope of the gospel, and that's this deliverance. Uh, in verse 3, Esther again comes to the king. Uh, this time she's not carefully waiting, but there's this emotional outburst. She's pleading with the king. And you had to show only happiness in the presence of the king, or it would be off with your head. And so we see the king again extend his golden scepter after this, in verse 4, indicating that, Esther has been pardoned. And so Esther responded with this request in verses 5 through 6. And we see how her heart is afflicted for the sake of her people. She says, 
how can I bear to see their destruction? This really is the way Christ is towards His people. Christ cannot bear to see the destruction of His dearly beloved people, chosen and precious in His sight, given to Him before the foundation of the world to, from His Father. And so in His immense and unspeakable love, beloved, He doesn't just plead for us. He gives His life for us so that we are not destroyed, so that we do not perish, because we are very dear to Him, because He loves us. He loves us so that He would be willing to give Himself up for us. And I think sometimes we see this as kind of just, you know, this transaction that happens. Yeah, I'm going to give myself up for them. Yeah, I died in their place. You know, But no, He loves us. He, he has these warm affections for us. He, we are dear in His sight. And He would not be able to bear to see our destruction. And we also see here that us being delivered from destruction is because He was acceptable in the sight of the King of Kings. See Esther plead with the King on the basis of her acceptability. She said, if I am pleasing in your eyes, then please grant this request to deliver my people from destruction. Well, beloved, it's because Christ is pleasing in God's sight. That Christ is the one who did everything required for us. Being ex His work being accepted by the Father, as evidenced by Him being raised from the dead, that we are accepted and delivered from destruction. If Christ was not accepted by the Father, we would have no hope. We would be destroyed. So the greater than Esther's acceptance is Christ's acceptance that delivers us from destruction in the sight of the king. Nevertheless, there, there remains a dilemma in the story of Esther here. The king responds in verse 7 that he has dealt with Haman by killing him and giving to Esther Haman's house. However, that's really all he can do because as verse, the end of verse 8 says, For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. What Haman wrote about the destruction of the Jews and sealed with his ring cannot be revoked. Esther is asking it for, to, for it to be revoked, and the king says, well, I can kill Haman, which I have done. I can give you his house, but this I cannot do. So the king is essentially saying, I could put Haman to death, I can give the house to Esther, but I can do nothing about the decree. But he does say to them in verse 8, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. In other words, you may come up with a decree that somehow counters my irrevocable decree with regard to the destruction of the Jews. However, the king doesn't offer any suggestions. You get sense that he doesn't care as much. However, Esther and Mordecai do care. And they are going to deliver the people from destruction by great wisdom. It seems to have taken a couple of months because verse 9 says that it happened in the third month. However, the, the king's scribes are summoned and letters are written in their own language, in, in the language of all the people in each of the 127 provinces. 
And this edict is sent out on swift horses, as verse 7 says, so there's some urgency. And this is what Mordecai came up with in verses 11 and 12. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair. So while the edict could not be reversed, Mordecai actually has this great wisdom and finds a way to bring about this poetic type of reversal. He says that if anyone does follow the edict, the king allows the Jews to defend their life on that day. They are allowed to destroy, kill, and annihilate, ironically the same words used in the first edict, any who attack them. This even includes women and children. No one is off limits. And this changed the mind of many who ended up declaring themselves Jews at the end of verse 17 says, whether truly or nominally, it it had an effect. So once again, it was through great wisdom that God people were delivered from destruction. And this is the way it is with the gospel. The thing about the dilemma that we were in. We deserve to be punished. We are under the sentence of death. And God, who is perfectly just, who by no means can leave the guilty unpunished, should punish us for our sins. Otherwise, justice is not done. And yet, who would have ever thought of this? God sending His Son to take our punishment so that His justice would be satisfied and we would be forgiven. No one would ever think of that. This is God's wisdom. In God's infinite wisdom, we are delivered from destruction. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that the Gospel is the wisdom of God. And this brings upon the greatest joy, which brings us to the third poetic reversal that pictures the hope of the Gospel. That is joy. Verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. So first notice the clothing that Mordecai is wearing in verse 15. Remember back in chapter 4 what he wore? Sackcloth and ashes. Here we see him wearing the exact opposite. Royal robes. Kingly robes. And a great golden crown. And this reversal shows what happens in the Gospel. We are those who mourn. Mourn over our sin. Covered in our shame. But because of the Gospel, we are delivered from that. And we are 
crowned with glory, not the glory of our Lord, but as Hebrews 2 says, we are brought to glory, bringing many sons to glory, clothed with a body like Jesus, a glorious body. What a reversal that is in light of the Gospel. And we who mourn over our sin rejoice. And this came because our Lord, who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, went to the cross, despising the shame, but did it for what? The glory set before Him. So this sorrow comes before uh, this, this glory, but this is what the Gospel does. It, it turns mourning into gladness. And we will have everlasting joy and gladness because of what Christ has done for us. At the end of chapter 3, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now there is shouting and celebration. In chapter 4, the Jews were all grieving and fasting. Now it says here they are rejoicing and feasting. And this is what the Lord has done for us. Though sorrow may last for a night. We do go through sorrow in this life, don't we? It may last for a night. Rejoicing will come in the morning with the dawn of a new creation. And every tear will be wiped from our eye and every heartache will vanish. We will soon forget every fleeting hardship and sorrow as we stand in the presence of our great God and Savior after we have suffered in this life for just a short time. We will celebrate an eternal holiday, an eternal Sabbath rest as we forever enjoy the God for whom we were made. And so, beloved, as we go through this difficult and sad life, let's remember these poetic reversals. Our Lord now possesses His enemy's house and is plundering His kingdom. He's head of the church. And now all things are ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. We will inherit the earth. We who were under the authority of our enemies of sin, death, and the devil, and under a decree of destruction, have been forever saved by them, from that by our Lord taking that destruction upon Himself on the cross and rising again. And we who mourn, we who mourn over sin, we who mourn over the curse, over this body of death, over such a wicked world, over things that happen in this sad world, we will soon shout and rejoice as we come into the presence of our Savior to glorify Him and fully enjoy Him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we ask for Your help in re reminding us of these things, helping us to get us through this difficult life. We are thankful for Christ and the hope of glory. Help us to look to that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.